Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In 2018, I did a series of programs marking the 90th anniversary of broadcasting in Hong Kong with Radio Television Hong Kong, or RTHK, marking its roots going right back to 1928. In August 1959, commercial radio was founded. It was livelier than Radio Hong Kong. One of my guests on that series was Joel DeLacy, who started off as a production assistant to broadcaster Aileen Bridgewater when he began his career at commercial radio in 1979. In February 2019, I interviewed him on Hong Kong Heritage to mark his 40th anniversary in the radio business. And this is a rebroadcast of that programme. 40 years is a long time. It's a long time. I've actually worked here over five different decades, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the zeros, and whatever we're calling the teens. Yes, I joined in 1979. When you joined in 1979, uh, can you tell me sort of what job you had and also what equipment? Well, when I joined, I was interviewed by the then general manager, Nick DeMuth, who said to me, you will stay and do the job. We don't want someone who's going to only be here two months and then leave and that was like 39 years ago or something. Um, my first job was actually answering phones for the phone-in program with Aileen Bridgewater, March 1979. I remember the first call that I took was from band leader Joe Loss, who was visiting on the Queen Elizabeth liner at Ocean Terminal. And he was? Well, he was the band leader. He was a very well-known band leader. I'd never heard of him before, but I still remember the very first call I took. He was a, an arranged interview because we would get a lot of calls from members of the public, but we'd always arrange interesting interviews because sometimes, like in all phone, phone-in shows, people sometimes don't call. You've got to fill it up. But the equipment we had, oh, was very, very, I won't say primitive, it was very old-fashioned. The, the equipment had valves in it, and they'd open it up, and there'd be valves inside glowing. Everything was, of course, reel-to-reel, -reel, but nearly everything was live. But it was very difficult in those days, because you had to record something, you'd have to edit it, it'd be a lot of work. Whereas nowadays, it's a lot simpler to be on the radio, and you get so many more resources. It's so easy to contact people, it's so easy to interview people, they're more willing, and also it's so easy to just edit and keep archives. We don't have any proper archives from those years because they were just too difficult to keep on open reel tapes. Aileen Bridgewater was a very colourful character. I knew her in later years, but she was also quite a serious broadcaster. Oh, yes, she had some experience in Singapore. She worked with us for many years, and she had a few topics that she was very interested in. Of course, she was one of the people who started up Helping Hand, for the elderly people in Hong Kong, and because she was so incensed when she's heard the stories about caged people in Chun Wan. Still a slight problem today, but no, she was very instrumental in starting Helping Hand with many other people. Also, the infamous John McLennan case, she was very involved in that with then Elsie Elliott, later Elsie too. He was the policeman who committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest five times. Yeah, so she really took that on board and, and made it quite a... I mean, that was repeatedly on the radio as she investigated that. Oh, that was a worldwide story because someone shooting themselves five times in the chest. But it also uh, exposed a lot of problems in the Hong Kong government and the police force and the special investigation unit going after gay people in the civil service and police. It was an unfair time. With you in 1979, what made you decide to join a radio station? Had you always enjoyed listening to radio in Australia? Well, I always wanted to be on television. Actually, I must admit it was nepotism because my father was working here at the time, <laughs> Laurie Rickson. So I, I thought, why not? I'd, I'd like to try it for a while. And I got in and I changed my name, of course. I used my middle name, Joel DeLacy. 
And it's just interesting because you meet so many different people. You're not stuck behind a desk. You don't have to be good looking on radio. I've always been told I have a good face for radio. There's a certain magic about radio. Oh, certainly is. I've always said that anyone who's on the radio is an actor. I've watched so many people and done it myself as what we used to call a DJ, but I suppose you'd be a presenter these days. You come in, you're feeling tired, you're angry about something, you're not feeling good, you're not happy, but you turn the microphone on, you've got to be happy. You've got to talk to that one person out there in the audience. You've got to sound interested because you're acting. That's what all DJs are. It's a great Hong Kong weekend on commercial now, with, when you were beginning, as you said, you were the phone person for the phone-in programme for Aileen Bridgewater in 1979. But uh, talk me through, when you go into the early 80s, what sort of technology did you have? Well, it was just a phone with a coil around the phone. It was just a, a very, very Heath Robinson attachment in those days. But, of course, now it's all wired into the system. But it was most difficult to contact people because you could only phone people up. If they weren't in their office, you'd have to leave a message and you'd have a lot of trouble. Telephone tag, we used to all do that before pages and before phones came in. And if we recorded with someone, we'd have to go out to them and arrange a time. And often you'd take very heavy recording equipment that really weighed your shoulder down. It was not, you can't just take a MP3 recorder or an iPhone. Commercial radio is set up in 1959 with 50,000 Hong Kong dollars by George Ho. At the time, we've got Radio Hong Kong government. We've also got rediffusion from Radio Rediffusion from 1949 onwards. What was the purpose behind setting up commercial radio? Well, I think that I wasn't around at the time, but obviously there was a need for it in the market because rediffusion was wired into people's homes, lots of people's homes. Radio Hong Kong was, and for many, many years, was very conservative, shall we say, and it was very English. It was a very red telephone box syndrome it used to be described as, not to diss RTHK too much in those days, but everyone from morning to night was English and all the music they played were English. So when commercial radio came on the scene, we offered a very interesting alternative. We had international people working for our channels. Uh, we played more international as American music, English music, Australian music. The DJs, as they were in those days, were more lively and, and had more personality because they had more freedom. And I must give Mr. George Ho great credit because he started the company, yes, but he was also the general manager for many years. And he ran the company very well. And we're an independent company. We're owned by the, the Ho family and many other people, but we're not on the stock market or anything. And we've done a really good job for Hong Kong over the years as a, a third voice in the market. Commercial radio, obviously you had to have advertising. So is that, was that the main revenue? Is that how you made your money? Oh, yes. It's a, it's a commercial organisation, but that's never impacted on our programming, although we do have sponsored programs, but our news department has always been completely independent. It's a very expensive operation running a news department, and this is the English and Chinese news, but that's never been in the way. That's caused more problems for the company over the years because we have been independent. We have gone after certain stories and uh, criticised people and, and the government at times when it's been warranted. So what would you say are a couple of, you know, I mean, I'm asking you to go over yeah. 40 years, yeah. but, but uh, what would you say are a couple of key stories that you worked on? Well, some of them stand out. Uh, in the early 1980s, 
I was working part-time in the newsroom on a Saturday night because they were short-staffed. I went to a uh, fire in Natal Kok in a squatter area. People forget how the hillsides in Hong Kong were just covered in squatter huts and there was no trees because they'd all been cut down for firewood. But there was a big fire in a squatter settlement. About two or 3,000 people lost their homes. And I was there trying to sort of get a story back to the studio, and of course, no mobile phones in those days. I'd have to go knock on someone's door in a nearby housing estate covered in smoke and you know, show them I'm from commercial radio and ask to use their phone to send a report in. But you know, there were literally thousands of people running around who'd lost their homes. That was, that was a very difficult thing. Some of your stories, yeah. of course, you're going out to go and get them. But, I mean, there was one horrific day, really, in the 1990s, where suddenly the story was right in front of you. Yes, in 1998, I was in the newsroom on the first floor with about five other people. The security guard came in said something, and everyone jumped up. And I said, what's happened? They said, there's fighting in the car park. So I went downstairs. There was nothing in the car park. But outside the front of the building, our host, Albert Cheng, who hosted the very top-rating morning interview comment program was lying on the ground there was three people standing there and well there was a lot of blood around because he'd been attacked by I think two people who attacked him with choppers and he was lying on the ground and people were sort of standing back not knowing what to do so I went and got some tourniquets and tied around his arms and legs and you could see in his suit he had a lot of cut marks from the razor sharp knives that he'd been cut with and there was a big pool of blood under him, so I sort of held his arm because I didn't want him to move, and I sort of said, oh, I can hear the ambulance coming, but actually I couldn't, but that was for a couple of minutes there, and everyone was sort of standing back, the three people there, because they didn't really know what to do, and within a few minutes, the police arrived, and I sort of stood up and held my hands out in front because I was covered in blood at that stage, and I stepped back because the police had a first aid kit, and I went back inside, washed the blood off my hands and went back to my computer and thought, I need to type this story up for the 7 o'clock news. So shaking hands, I typed up the story and went downstairs and read it. And, and I said in the, in the story that you know, ambulance men are still working on Albert Cheng just a few metres from where I'm sitting on the other side of the wall. And my voice was very shaky that day because no one really knew what had happened or why. And actually, in the end, no one ever really figured out why it was attacked. Was it political? Was it personal? But security was greatly increased in the building after that. And for the next year, after Albert came back to work, he was with policemen every day who were guarding the uh, floor that he was on. The music you remember From the station Commercial radio starts in 1959. Let's have a think. I know you're not here yet, but what do you think would have been the early ads running in Hong Kong in the 1960s? Oh, I think they're probably the ads that were still running in the 70s <laughs> when they were for all sorts of products, electrical products, watches. There was a watch company that was a big sponsor for decades on commercial radio on the Chinese and English channels. Um, also, a lot of industries, I think, too, selling things to the people who were getting some money and were finally in Hong Kong being able to buy products. And they're not like bicycles in China. They were buying televisions, all stuck on TUB, of course, but consumer products. And uh, so you would have just, what, 30 seconds and then you're back to normal programming? Oh, 
Well, when you work in a commercial organization, commercials are part of your programming. A DJ will never say, we'll be back after these commercials. No, you incorporate it into what you're doing. You don't want to turn the listener or the viewer off because it's part of your program. You're supposed to make it interesting enough that they're still listening because you want them to listen because that's paying for your salary. In terms of, we've talked about Aileen Bridgewater, also Albert Cheng. Um, but who would you say, um, I mean, again, it's over the, the four to five decades you've been here. What, who would you say are key presenters that you would highlight? Well, of course, Aileen was one of the talk show hosts, but we also had Tony Lawrence, the respected BBC correspondent. He would also do the talk show for five days a week at one stage. But it was always difficult because he was so knowledgeable and interesting, he would start to talk about a subject and give three, four minutes talking about... I do remember him talking about North Korea even in those days, in the, in the 80s. And then at the end of it, he'd say, what do you think of that? And no one could call in because he'd given such a good information about the subject. But other people we had, what, Norman Wingrove, Jack Spackman, who used to be an editor of The Star, uh, but also on-air stuff. We had so many people over the years, so many names, like Jim Nicholson, Pat Chang in the early days, Rennie Marcus, who's actually still working here at part-time, Mickey Mock, a program Jimbo and Jono, which was a very interesting program where they would sort of rhyme their whole 15 minutes. A lot of work went into that. People like Mike King, Rick O'Shea, who went on to... FM Select and then into China for many years. People like Felicity Stapley. Steve Britton used to work with us. He left and went to BFBS and was in Brunei for many, many years. People like Ashton Farley, whose catchphrase was, it sold a million. Tony Orchez, who they used to call Hong Kong's Johnny Mathis because he sounded like that. He released quite a few records. Also people like Theresa Norton, Andy Curtis, people who are still around in Hong Kong today who did work here. I just wish I'd kept a diary because so many people have worked here over the years that I've forgotten all their names. Anthony Lawrence worked at Commercial Radio and was also primarily the BBC correspondent here for many years, covering news events in Southeast Asia. He covered the Vietnam War and the Great Leap Forward and the terrible famine in China, among many other stories. He made Hong Kong his home and died here at the age of 101 in 2013. This is Anthony Lawrence actually in a televised BBC piece in 1967, reporting from Hong Kong on people travelling to the mainland on the first Chinese New Year since the Cultural Revolution. For Chinese everywhere, this is the great holiday of the year, the Chinese New Year, when you pay your debts and buy new clothes and go to the fair and visit your family. Visit your family. For many Chinese here in Hong Kong, that means a journey by train to the communist mainland. But far fewer people are going this year. They're still running the special trains, but there aren't the queues. The trains aren't full. And the reason's clear enough. With Chairman Mao's revolution underway on the mainland, family parties aren't encouraged. The holiday atmosphere in Hong Kong, with its sales of orange trees and tangerines and peach blossom, and all the presents for friends and relatives, all that's in sharp contrast with what the communist authorities are trying to lay on on the mainland. They're saying that the spring festival, as they call the Chinese New Year, must be spent thriftily and frugally, and there's to be no staying away from the job. But that's like telling people in the West to work all over Christmas. And in spite of all the propaganda and the orders, I should imagine that many Chinese in many parts of the mainland are spending Chinese New Year pretty much as they're doing here in Hong Kong.
Now, over the years, you were saying about early years where you had, uh, say, fires in, in squatter huts and, and or on the hillside, and you're off there phoning in, literally, to the news programmes. But also, when you were, say, going off to do a radio feature or you needed to go off and record somebody, what would the equipment have been? Well, we used to have... Uh, small ewer machines who were about two foot by one foot, but they were very heavy. We also had Nagra machines, which were very professional tape recorders that would be used on film sets to record the sound. But some of the people just could not carry them. They'd have to take someone with them to help. But you'd get good quality sound out of that. But then once again, you've recorded it, you have to bring it back, you have to physically edit it. A lot of editing involved using a razor blade to literally cut the tape. So, of course, you'd need to make a coffee beforehand. It was all very time-consuming. And radio is a very immediate thing. It used to be that you'd hear it first on radio, watch it on television that night, and read about it in the newspaper tomorrow. Well, that's not really the same now, but radio has an immediacy because things can be done live. If something really important is happening, someone can be standing there talking about it. Of course, now, with modern communications and the Internet, it's a different ballgame. But would you say that radio has straddled that quite well, you know, in terms of going on to uh, the internet with podcasts and that, that uh, in fact, radio has found a way to survive? Radio will always be there because it's so accessible. And also, a radio station has a bit of credibility because anyone can start an internet radio station. And I know in Hong Kong there are many, but what sort of credibility do they have? What sort of accountability do they have? What sort of uh, government monitoring do they have? And I mean that in the right way, government monitoring to make sure they do the job properly and are fair and balanced, which needs to be. But radio is there, it's going to be there. People in cars all listen to the radio. Mm. And people listen... To, I, I don't own a radio myself at home. I only listen through the computer or my phone all the time. Podcasting is a really good thing because it gives me, the listener, the choice of the program I like and want to listen to when I'm ready. But to me, it's still radio. So the podcast Hong Kong Heritage, have you got that one? It's on my list, of course. <laughs> now, with commercial radio, how does it work in terms of government licensing? Well, we are licensed by the government like other broadcasters over a certain period of time. We have certain content we have to put out. We have certain uh, minutes of the day that need to be for government announcements. There's two of those every hour, but I think you'll notice that on, on all uh, official media in Hong Kong. Uh, our news department has to have certain numbers of hours, but also we have to be monitored to make sure we are fair and balanced, and that we are. So what are you doing these days? These days I'm the program director of AM864, which used to be 1044, and before that was 1050. Our frequencies moved around a bit. I run the whole channel myself. I look after the computer, which has all the music in it. There's no more carrying records downstairs or carrying CD cases downstairs, which we would invariably drop all the time. Uh, I program the computer, program all the music, and also I, I do work in the newsroom too. It is a smaller operation than it used to be. In the 80s we had full DJs all day and most of the night, but the situation has changed now because people go home and can listen to a radio station anywhere in the world. Hopefully they'll listen to local radio, RTHK and commercial radio, because we are local people. We have the local news and the local weather. Even back in 1959 onwards, what, was the, what, what would you have said was the aim of commercial radio? Well, I think well, very much to inform and entertain, which is similar to the, uh, 
BBC, but we want to entertain people. We've always had, as a commercial organisation, we've always tried to be more friendly towards the audience. And we can experiment a bit. The people on air can be funny, they can be serious, they can act up a bit, or they can just have different characters. Because we are trying to entertain people as well. But over the years, we've had so many different types of programming. I think we had the first ethnic program in Hong Kong for many years. We ran the, the Indian half hour on a Sunday morning, which was a very, very popular program among the Indian community in Hong Kong. Uh, we also had a lot of programs that were about boats and cars. And also, for many years, we would do live broadcasts from sporting events in Hong Kong. And as a commercial organization, we would actually have to get sponsors to go there because it's an expensive deal to take people out of the studio and set up a booth at, like, the Hong Kong Open the golf in Fanling, which was nice when the weather was warm, uh, tennis in Victoria Park, the squash, go-karting, we went to Macau. Now, when you're outside in, in any kind of outdoor broadcasting, is great colour, but is fraught with difficulties. So, I mean, can you remember some, some times where sports events went well and some that didn't? Well, we always enjoyed going to the golf at Fanling. We'd go out there for nearly a week and we'd be sitting in a big booth at the end of the 18th fairway. And it was nice when the sun was out, but then some years it was like six or seven degrees and the wind was whistling down the 18th and we'd be freezing sitting there. But also communication was very difficult because in an event like that, you don't really know what's happening in other places because there was no mobile phones. People had walkie-talkies and it was hard to find out what was happening. Other events, it was difficult also because there was no two-way between us and the studio. We, we'd have times organised to do a live crossover, but sometimes the DJ in the studio would be busy doing his programme and forget about us. And we'd be sitting there all ready at the microphone to give our report, and, and they wouldn't cross over. We'd have to run and look for a phone in a nearby building somewhere and call them up and say, what have you done? You've forgotten about us. So the entire programme of Jimbo and Jono was in rhyme? Yes, it was called Rock and Roll Spins for 15 Mins. Uh, <laughs> one of the men, John Doig, was a very senior advertising person in Hong Kong. The other one was the distributor of a very well-known cognac, and he did all the writing, and they just, they just enjoyed doing this. They'd come in, record it. Of course, the operator would have to do a lot of editing afterwards when they didn't get it right, but they play music from the 50s and the 60s, and it was actually a brilliant program, but how many of those programs ac actually exist now, I don't know, because it was very hard to keep archives in those days, because everything was on tape. And if you walked into the studio or into our offices in the 80s, you would see everyone's desk was piled two or literally three feet high with open reel tapes. And it's like the video collection we all had at home. You would never know what was on what tape and you would lose it. And so, so many things have been lost to the sands of time. Nowadays, you can keep everything in MP3. You can carry a whole year's programme in your pocket now. So when was this programme on? Oh, the programme was mid-80s. It lasted a few years, but as I said, it was a lot of work for them and they didn't get paid for it, really. I think they got paid a very token amount. But a lot of people who work in radio do it for the love of radio because sometimes you can put an awful lot of work into a programme and walk out of the studio afterwards and it's gone. It's a memory. No one's got a copy of it and people might remember it for a day or two, but you've got to do the same thing next week. In the late 1980s, we spent about a year doing helicopter traffic reports in the morning, which was a very <laughs> enjoyable time. We'd meet in uh, Wan Chai at the helipad at about 8 o'clock in the morning and lift off and 
go across Central, across Khun Wan, across to Sha Tin, then across Kai Tak Airport, which was still open at the time, and back to Central, telling people what the traffic situation was. Only problem was, in the late 1980s, the only tunnels open were the Cross Harbour Tunnel and the Aberdeen Tunnel, so traffic was pretty much the same every day. It was westbound on King's Road and on Princess Margaret Road, traffic's back to Oyman Estate. But when there was an accident or something, we could also uh, give some information about that. But technically it was difficult because we only had mobile phones. Mobile phone's great if you're walking around or in a car, but when you're a you know, thousand feet in the air, moving at a hundred miles an hour, the signal doesn't always um, stick. So we'd have to go to certain places and hover the helicopter and give our reports. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end of everything that stands. The end, no sense. You had your earphones on, or your earmuffs rather, and you're just yelling down the mobile. Well, we had a microphone set up in it because we couldn't use the radio system, but that's basically how it worked. And but, who provided the helicopter? Oh, that was from the local company, Heli Services, but they were providing a helicopter. It was the sponsor that was paying for it, so we thanked them very much. But we did that every day. I took a few people up friends and colleagues, I should have taken more people up, because it was interesting in those days, the pollution was very light, and you could really see Hong Kong then, and I remember flying over Lantau one time, and the pilot pointed out where they were going to build a new airport, I said, oh really? <laughs> I, I took a few photos, but they're not for a good quality, but the helicopter was good because during Chinese New Year, there was no traffic on the road, so the, the pilot said, we're wasting our time giving traffic reports, let's go out to Lantau, so we flew out to Lantau and through a few valleys and came up beside the big Buddha and then on the way back we were sort of scooted over the hills like out of apocalypse now and then we <laughs> we went across the waves very low it wasn't as low as I thought but it felt very low it was like the opening sequence to Hawaii Five-O. <laughs> Over. I mean, no, I don't <laughs> mean... <laughs> yes. Well, I handed the flag to the governor. <laughs> During the handover, we did a live broadcast from the convention centre. It was really in the middle of history and, and history for Hong Kong. Unfortunately, I would rather have been out on the streets with the people and watching what was happening. But I was there with all the, all the uh, politicians and basically most of the media were sequestered away anyway and we were watching it on television really in the end but we were there and after it was over we went outside and all the people were coming out of the convention center and it was a very historic moment i hear good djs i hear not so good djs yes. <laughs> what would you say are some of the secrets do you need to really have a program planned out with lots of gizmos or a good dj can ad lib a bad DJ has an ad-lib script next to him 
But many DJs just sit there and it's their personality, but also they understand how it works. One of the best DJs we ever had was Steve James, who went on to Metro and of course now is on Radio 3. But he's got the gift of the gab. He knows what to do and he's just on the ball all the time. One of the rules of radio is when you make a mistake on air, don't refer back to it. Don't apologize for it, especially if you've got some dead air or something. People won't hear it because often if you hear something on the radio you're not sure about it. You think, did I just hear that? People have said things on air they shouldn't have said on all the radio stations in Hong Kong. But you don't want to tell people you said that. So just move on. Just move on. So what are you doing for your 40th anniversary? I'll probably be here at 6.30 in the morning, as I always am, and I'm never late. I've always worked, my whole working life before here, I worked a morning shift in jobs I've done because I'm very reliable. I've slept in a few times. I've arrived here a minute before I'm supposed to be on air a number of times, but I don't think, I've only ever missed one broadcast. You're listening to AM864. My thanks to Joel DeLacy marking his 40th year at Commercial Radio. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong.